If you have a Bible, turn with me to the New Testament book of First Thessalonians. Today we begin a new series through this incredible book that's going to take us all the way to Easter. If you've been in the church for the past year or more, you know that we spent a lot of time studying Old Testament books. We thought it was good and right and healthy for us to do so. Now, beginning this year, we are back in the New Testament with a series we're calling Fully Alive through this very important and remarkable book. And to introduce the topic and to highlight some of the major themes in this book to kick us off, we're going to look specifically at verses 1 through 4 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So let me read these verses, let's pray together, and let's invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Wherever you are, whoever you're with, whether at home or you're here in the room or outside, God wants to speak to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you. This is God's Word. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank You that every person in this room, those watching online, those sitting outside, matter to You. You're aware of all that concerns us, and we ask this morning that by the power of your Spirit, you would speak into all of our cares and concerns and our hopes and our dreams, and that you would draw our attention to you. May you be at the very center of our lives. Would you remind us this morning, and as we begin this journey together, of what it is that we need to cultivate, what it is that we need to pay attention to in this season? What are the particular areas of our lives and even our church that you want to both challenge and encourage? Pray that you would begin that work today as we open our hearts. Would your word come to bear on us in a way that changes us and point us to Jesus? And if there's anyone that does not yet know you, I pray that today they would understand all that you've done in Jesus, that they too would believe and be saved. We ask it in his name. And everyone said, amen. Martin Luther King Jr., we know, faced many challenges and controversies in his cause for racial justice and reconciliation. And he spoke from experience when he said these words. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times 
of challenge and controversy. Indeed, it is true. It's one thing to talk about what we believe, to talk about our convictions in a philosophical conversation over a latte on a nice Saturday morning in Ventura County. But it's quite another thing to talk about your beliefs and your convictions when you are suffering, when you are facing times of trial and temptation. Why? Because trials are revealing. Times of testing reveal what matters most to you. And it's in those seasons and times of challenges and controversy that we ask the question, what do we really stand for? What matters most to us? And what will we be known for? Well, friends, whether we like it or not, whether we realize it or not, or whether we're prepared for it or not, we will continue to face moments of trial, testing, and temptation. And the questions are, how will we respond? What does that say about us? And what will we be most known for? Well, 2,000 years ago, a church in the ancient city of Thessalonica faced their own challenges. They faced their own controversies. They faced their own times of testing and trial and temptation. How did they respond? What did it reveal about them? And indeed, what were they, in the end, most known for? Well, the church we're going to be learning about over the next few months went through their seasons and times of challenges in an exemplary way. And we read over the next few months Paul's letter to them, and we're, in a sense, reading over their shoulder. Living in one of the most important and largest cities in Macedonia meant that Thessalonica was a very cosmopolitan city. And religiously speaking, there was a little something for everyone, so long as you paid your taxes. Just like California, right? You can believe whatever you want. You can believe in yourself. You can believe in any religion, but just pay your, we might add, very high taxes. That's what it was like in Thessalonica. And this city's connection to Rome was no doubt one of the reasons that Paul the Apostle arrived there a year before the time that he penned this letter. You see, Paul the Apostle was a senior leader of the early church. He was what we might call a church planter. He would go into a city or a region. He would share the gospel. He'd share the good news about Jesus and lives would be changed, and he would then organize them into a local church congregation, not unlike ours today. And this is exactly what happened in Thessalonica. But almost immediately, when the church was gathered and assembled and being established, while the church itself was still quite new, opposition challenge and controversy arose towards Paul himself and the work that he was doing, and it forced him out of the city. And as a result, this new and young church 
that we call the Thessalonian church, they would then very quickly face their own challenges, their own temptations, their own controversies. And it was while Paul was away from them that he began to worry about them. He was concerned. How are they doing? How are they holding up under the the pressure? These are the questions in his heart. And it was out of his concern for these men and women that Paul sends Timothy, one of his co-workers, to Thessalonica to see how they were getting on. And so Timothy goes and he visits them and he spends time with them and he brings back a good report to Paul. And Paul's response is to write a letter of encouragement, instruction, and assurance. Because based on that report, Paul learned that their time of trial revealed signs of life. And this is what gave Paul such great encouragement in his own heart. And this is what caused caused him to praise God. And why wouldn't he? In the words of one of the early church leaders, uh, Irenaeus, he said this, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. I love that. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. And this is in many ways what the book of 1 Thessalonians is all about. And when he begins his letter, he not only summarizes the themes that we'll learn throughout our time studying this, but he actually reminds us where the source of this life is located. Notice how he addresses them in verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, his co-workers, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the most important thing about this new church community? It was that their life was found in God. And in saying and referring to them as the church in God, Paul is saying that the life that we truly need is not going to be found in some man-made philosophy or a particular political party or just getting the right job or a different job or moving to just the right place, as many of us often think. We think, oh, if I just could be in this new job or if I can just move somewhere else or if I can just have this kind of friendships, then, then I would be fully alive. Well, friend, I hate to break it to you, but it's not going to happen. The only way in which we will become fully alive is if our lives are found in God. He is the source of all that is good and right and holy and powerful and beautiful. But we might ask, well, how can this be ours? Well, that's also summarized in this first verse. He greets them with these twin words, grace and peace. The total sum of God's actions toward us is summarized and expressed in one little word, grace. Grace is all that is given to you in Jesus Christ. His kindness in delivering you and me from the guilt of our sin and our shame and the result of which, was his, which is death, even eternal death, all comes to us because of Jesus Christ. Nothing that we have is earned. 
God owes nothing to us. Which is an important reminder when we're feeling just a little bit, dare I say, entitled. When we begin to act towards God like, hey God, where's my stuff? I've been a good boy this year. It's only like 20 days in, but I've been a good girl this year so far, 2022. So I'm kind of wondering like, where are all the things on my list that I gave you a few weeks ago? Sometimes we approach God like we're a taxpayer with rights. God, I did my little holy actions, so where's my road? Where's my repave road? And how come you haven't fixed the pothole, Lord God? I've been good. Where's my stuff? See, that is the attitude, which is a religious attitude of entitlement. I pay my taxes and holy good works and God owes me things. Friends, if you want to be remembered what you are owed, read the book of Romans where it says you are owed death. Just to humble us a little bit. <laughs> because of our sin, we are owed death. That is what our sin deserves. But God in his grace and in his mercy has not given us what we are owed. He's given us what we are not owed, which is forgiveness and light and life. And that's how Paul introduces this letter. The church in God. How can we be in God? It's because of grace. And what is the result of that grace? It's peace. It's peace. No longer are we in conflict with God. We are in relationship with him. It is the peace of knowing God and knowing that he knows you. It's the kind of peace we all long for. It's the kind of peace your neighbors long for, your family members long for, your coworkers long for. It is the kind of peace that the, the workaholic needs. It's the kind of peace that the addict longs for. It's the kind of peace that is found only in relationship with God. And that's why, notice, that when he gives thanks for these men and women that he hasn't seen for a year, who does he give thanks to? Look at verse 2. We always thank God. He doesn't thank himself, nor does he graduate, congratulate them. He says, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. But here's our question for this morning as we launch into the series. What prompted his thanksgiving? What exactly was that good report that Paul received after Timothy's visit? Well, it's found in verse 3. It was his memory of how they lived and what they were like that demonstrated they were fully alive. He summarizes it by saying, we remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what are these signs of life? How can we cultivate them in a time of challenge and controversy? I mean, this is an incredible summary of the Christian life. In fact, John Calvin, who was a great theologian from hundreds of years ago, stated that the opening words to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians was, quote, a brief definition of true Christianity. It's a brief definition of what God wants to bring about in your life. Three qualities that we as Reality Ventura should endeavor to be known for. In an age in which it's very easy to emphasize all the wrong things, what are the right things? 
Well, they're mentioned here in these three verses, these three qualities, and they begin with this. We need, the first sign of life, is we need a faith that lives. The opposite, of course, is a faith that is dead. A faith that is just a mere profession without any activity that follows. When Paul says, I remember your work, that it is work of faith, he's saying, your faith lived out in the open for others to see, evidenced in the work that you do. And so Paul says, man, when I think about our time together over a year ago, I remember your work of faith. Now this needs unpacking because the word faith is often used in a variety of ways and at times it can be confusing. More generally, the word faith is used in several ways. First, faith is often used as a reference to all religions. So what is your faith? What religious tradition are you from? That's one way in which the word faith is used. Another way in which the word faith is used is to describe your own personal and private preference. We would say, well, my faith says that this is kind of how I feel about things or how I view things. And in that sense, it's more of described as like an attitude or maybe an emotion or a feeling. A lot of, you know, kind of current popular songs when they sing about faith, it's usually this very generic yet personal subjective interpretation of the word faith. And as a result of the words being used like this, Oftentimes we think of faith as just kind of this like wishful thinking. Like, oh, that's cute. They have faith. She has faith. He has faith. Isn't that cute? But we all know it's like we live down here in hard reality. I don't have faith because I live in the real world, as my old friends used to often tell me when I first became a Christian. But here's what you need to know. The Bible never asks us to believe in something that is not presented as true. The Bible never just says, have some kind of generic faith. It's not as if you were to ask God this morning or go to the Bible and say, what is faith? And God's like, shh, just believe. And there's like a Celine Dion song in the background. You're like, oh, I get it now. When the Bible uses the word faith, it's not using some kind of generic reference to your personal preference. No, that is not the case. The Bible never asks you to believe in something that is also not presented as true. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that if all of this is not true, all the stuff about Jesus Christ and how God has worked throughout history, if it's all not true, then the church is pointless and Christianity is a sham. That's why all the writers, all the biblical writers are constantly putting forward the history, the facts, the validity, the truthfulness about Jesus. A call to faith is a call to believe what is true. But there's another aspect of faith. There's another element, if you will. And I believe that's what Paul is referring to here when he references their works of faith. Another way in, in order to understand the biblical concept of faith is belief plus commitment. It means I believe in something and now I'm going to live like it. I believe in this chair and now I'm going to sit in it trusting and believing that it is going to in fact hold me up. Belief plus commitment. 
I say this because one of the reasons why there's a lot of misperceptions about Christianity, especially in our culture, in our nation, is because there are many people who profess faith but do not possess faith. There are many people who are Christian in name only but who do not actually follow Jesus. In this way, faith is often viewed as something inherited, like your sweet grandmother was a Christian, so therefore it kind of like leaks onto you, and therefore you must be Christian. So when you're asked in a survey of what your religious belief is, you're like, well, I guess Christian. It's viewed as often inherited. Many have a profession of faith, but without possession of faith. And in that sense, to use a biblical phrase, it is faith that is dead. It's not alive. It's not real. It's like asking a person like, oh, hey, do you love your family? And they're like, oh, yes, of course. I profess that I love my family. Like, oh, cool. When was the last time you see them? Like, I don't know. Do you know where they are? Nope. Haven't seen them in 30 years. Okay. Did you ever try to look for them? Nope, not at all. Maybe a phone call? Nope. You're like, oh, that's interesting. You just said you love your family and that you literally don't know them and you haven't taken the time or effort to find them. That would be very strange. In the same way, is true of this idea of naming as a title Christian for yourself but not actually following Jesus. This is important because Paul is referring here to a faith that is alive. It's what we need in our current cultural moment. Now, don't misunderstand. Paul is emphatic that we are saved only by faith. It's not our works that save us. But having placed our faith in Christ, it should be evidenced in the way that we live. As it's often been said, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. To use a simple analogy, it's like fruit on a tree. The fruit does not give life to the tree. The fruit is evidence that there is life in the tree. So you don't say like, oh no, this tree's dead. Let's glue some apples to it. Let's glue some oranges and like hope that it works in reverse. Doesn't work like that. If there is life in the tree, it will result in fruit. You don't work your way into faith. Faith works its way out into your life. So for the Thessalonians as it must be for us. The object of our faith must be God. And the evidence of our faith must be service. Can this be said of me? Can this be said of Reality Ventura? When people think of our church, when they think of my life, we're not just remembered for what we said, we're remembered for what we emphasized. We know that's true, right? You could say a lot of things, and they could be true. But we're going to be remembered for what we emphasized. Paul, when you remember the Thessalonians, it was a faith that lived. He's like, man, when I think of you and I remember you, I remember your faith that was alive and I saw it evidenced in the way that you ordered your life. Could that be said of me? Could it be said of us? Believe in this season which, which everything just feels chaotic and difficult. What are we to give our attention to? But what we need is a faith that lives. There needs to be evidence in our lives, cultivated in our lives, prioritized in our lives. Listen, friend, 
This is a very simple truth, but one in which I need to be reminded of, and so do you. There are good works that Jesus has for you to walk in. Not just us generically as a church, for you. Good works for you. God created you for his glory and for the good of others. Works that you might walk in them. And if in any way we've drifted from that or forgotten that, may this be a season in which you hear the Spirit of God calling you to evidence your faith. We need a faith that lives, but there's more to that. You say, well, it's hard. Yes. And that's why Paul notices, secondly, the second virtue, if you will, the second sign of life that we need to cultivate in this season and as Christians is that we need a love that labors. We need a faith that lives, and we need a love that labors. What does that mean? When Paul remembers these men and women, he remembers their work of faith, but he also remembers, and he says it here, their labor of love. This also needs unpacking because it's a phrase that we hear quite often, and it's very much used in like a sentimental way about small acts of kindness. Like, oh, I knit these gifts for our friends. They're like, oh, your knitting is so good. And you're like, oh, it's just a labor of love. Like, oh, that's amazing. But the way in which Paul is using it is much more robust. Because when he says labor of love, he doesn't just mean it's an activity. He's talking about toil. He's talking about sweat. He's talking about effort. He's talking about wearying work that can often lead to fatigue. Maybe some of you are like, yeah, that's what knitting is like. I don't know. I confess my ignorance. But I definitely know that's what the Christian life is like. And some of us might need to be reminded that the Christian life is hard work. It's hard work. For some of you expecting to follow Jesus, that it was going to be nothing but like unicorns and rainbows and lollipops and good times, you may have been a little shocked when you started getting involved in the life of the church. You're like, hey, you show up to a community group, you're like, wait, wait a minute. These people are difficult. That's not what I signed up for, and one of them's my spouse. What's the deal? It's like, well, the Christian life is hard. It's going to involve toil. It is going to involve labor. We are often going to face difficulties and challenges as we seek to live out our faith in a matter of serving one another and dealing with broken relationships and trying to connect with one another in community and trying to serve within our church and dealing with other people's drama. You're like, stop. I'm already like, oh, it's too much. Which is why many of us have gotten to the point at times, or maybe you're there today, where we might be tempted to say, you know what? I'm burnt out. I'm just burnt out. It's a phrase I've used often. It's a phrase I hear often within the church. Burnout. Hey, are you still part of that community group? No, I just got burned out. Hey, are you still serving in the church? No, I just burned out. It's a problem. I hear it often. I've used it of and in my own life. And that's why I was surprised when 
in a particularly difficult season for me when I was pastoring in LA, I was just facing all these challenges and I used to use it even around my staff, like, man, I am burnt out. So like a good friend, one of my friends gave me this book on pastoring and how to face all the difficulties and challenges in, you know, pastoring. And one of the chapters was, lo and behold, on burnout. I have good friends in my life. But what shocked me was in this chapter, the pastor who was writing it, he refers to the top three reasons of why Christians burn out in ministry. And I was surprised by what they were. So here they are in order. What's the number one reason, according to this man's research, of why Christians burn out in the church? Number one, those who work to gain approval from others. He said, in all my years of ministering, and all the people that I've met and known who have, who have burnt out in ministry, the number one, the most prominent reason why people burn out is when they are working to gain approval from other people. Those who are most prone to burnout are those who need, have a high need for approval. That is that what's driving you in your involvement in the church or in service or in community is you want their praise, you want their approval, you want their affirmation. So that when the community group happens and you made lasagna and no one thanked you for it, you're not just bummed out, you're like derailed so that that night you're like, oh Lord, would you look upon your servants in my community group with mercy for they did not appreciate my gluten-free, carefully curated lasagna. Forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. And then this adds up. They didn't thank me for hosting. They didn't thank me. Like, how comes no one thanking me? And it begins to add up. But all the while, if you begin to burn out, you realize that what was driving you was the need for approval. And in a season in which you're not getting it, and people haven't like sent you the eight paragraph email that you wanted for the service that you did, you will find yourself burning out. Why? Because you're relying on the wrong fuel. Because we're broken people, and though we should cultivate encouragement, you're not always going to get it. You're not always going to get the high five or the pat on the back, but it's okay because even when it's absent in the church, it's always present with God, who through Jesus Christ gives you the only approval that you need. So much so that Paul said in another letter to the Corinthian church, he said, you know, I am willing to spend and be spent for your souls, even though the more I love you, the less I am loved. But he's like, I don't care. I'm doing it anyway because I know I'm loved by God. The second most prominent reason for burnout is those who serve in the church who work from guilt. That is, those people who never say no. Now, to be clear, there are some of you who never say yes to anything. It's called laziness. We're going to talk about that later. It's in Thessalonians. Thessalonians is coming for you. Brace yourself but not today. For those of you who do too much, and it may be because you never say no. Do you want to serve in this ministry? Yes. Do you want to serve at both services? Yes. Do you want to join eight groups? Yes, 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 and yes. Hey, can you come over and help me right now? Yes. Hey, can you serve this family? Yes. All the while you're driven by a guilt complex, maybe thinking that you're only approved by God if you do more or only that you're a really good Christian if you say yes to everything, but it's simply not true. A, you cannot do everything. You are a limited creature. B, you are not to be motivated by guilt, but by grace. You're never going to be, be able to meet all the needs around you. 
And you're not to be motivated by guilt. There are good reasons to say no. There are good reasons. We need boundaries. But there's a third reason, third top reason why people burn out, and it's those who work with a Messiah complex. This is an interesting one. The top three of those who are most prone to burn out in the church are those who work because they almost see themselves as another person's savior. We've all met those people. They're like, yes, they're broken, but I can fix you. I can save you. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I, or Jesus, will give you rest. <laughs> Those who think like, I, I, I get my identity from saving people. I get my identity from fixing people. And so I'm going to take all the opportunities in the church so that I can like save people. But friend, if that's you, here's the reality. You are not the savior. You are not the Messiah. There's only one. His name is Jesus and he's perfect. We don't need more. You cannot save anyone. And it will only lead to burnout. So how was it that the Thessalonians continued on? What is it that kept them from burning out? Well, listen, the answer to burning out is not checking out. Many of us think like, oh, it's just too much. I, I'm, I'm done. I'm out. I'm just checking out. I'm not going to participate. not going to get involved in the life of the community anymore. Maybe some of you are there. Maybe for some of you, this is your first time back in church. Maybe you're joining us online. I don't know where you are. But the answer to burning out is not checking out. The answer is love. Paul said, I remember your labor and I noted that it was a labor of love, meaning that the, the toil the work that you put into it was so clearly motivated by love. When Paul remembered the Thessalonians, he remembered their love. When you and I hit a wall, when it comes to serving and community within the church, when we're facing difficult people and difficult situations, when it's going to cost us to remain committed, what we need in that moment, what we need to drive us as individuals and as a church is love. Because it is in love that we will grow. It is in love that we will mature. It is in love that we will move forward. Even the fullest demonstration of spiritual gifting has no value if love is not present. That's what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Corinthian church. It's famous. You've heard it heard it at many weddings. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned as a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith Hope and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. If you're going to cultivate life in times of challenge, we must be driven by, compelled by the love of God. Because love is what pulls me out of my own head. Love is what pulls us out of maturity. Putting away childish things is putting away false motives. Like, I'm not somebody else's savior. I don't always need to say Yes, and 
I don't need to live off of other people's approval. I am loved by God. And that's what's going to drive me to love others. We love because God first loved us. Jesus said, let us love one another. He said, all the world will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. First John says, we know that we pass from death into life by the love that we have for one another. Abide these three, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Reality Ventura, we will be remembered for what we love the most. And what we love the most, we are willing to labor for. We need a love that labors. Paul says, when I think of you, and I was nervous about how you were doing, one of the things that brought me comfort, he says, was I remembered your labor of love. I think of you giving your all, that when you faced your own challenges and difficulties, you were compelled by love. But we might ask, but how do you keep going for the long haul? Well, that leads to the last sign of life. We need a faith that lives a love that labors, but lastly, we need a hope that lasts. And the gospel gives you a hope like no other, which is so powerful when you consider our current cultural climate. Because on the one hand, if you, if you think about it, like on paper, the staggering advancement of technology and health and safety and comfort, you would think that our current generation should be the most hopeful people. But plot twist, <laughs> we're all disappointed. We're all frustrated, which I would say is the general mood. No matter how you analyze the polls, it adds up to a loss of hope, even at times in the church. So how do you keep going when there are personal or communal obstacles or there's difficulties and challenges? We need hope. See, God doesn't only expect you to keep going when things are going well. We need hope. And the gospel gives us hope. See, no one can live without hope. Everyone lives with some kind of hope. Consider this illustration that we've used before, but it bears repeating to make the point. Imagine two women working on an assembly line. They have the same level of education, they have the same background, they even have the same temperament. They both also have the same monotonous, boring job. They put the same few parts for a machine together over and over again, all day long, eight hours a day. The room they work in is way too hot, noisy, and not well lit. Some of you are like, that is literally my job. <laughs> Their circumstance is identical in every way. They work the same number of hours. They get the same amount of breaks, except one is frustrated and the other is delighted. What's the difference? The first woman says, I hate this. This is terrible. And the second woman is saying, I'm fine. I'm just thrilled. Why? Because the first woman was told she was getting paid $20,000 a year. The second woman was getting paid $20 million a year. What was the difference? Some of you are like, how do I get that job? <laughs> Doesn't exist. What was the difference? The difference was in their expectation of the future. They had the same circumstances, but their expectation about what was going to happen 
in the future was different. Now, the point is not that we all need a better job with more money. That's not what I'm saying. The point is that the way that we face the present is radically shaped by what we believe about the future. And friends, if you are a believer in Christ, you have this promise, this assurance that Jesus Christ is coming again. Jesus Christ is coming back, and there will be an end to the pain and suffering and sorrow and death. That is what we believe. That is the Christian hope. We have hope in stereo, if you will. We look back on the finished work of Jesus Christ in the past when he died on the cross for our sins, and we have hope in the future knowing that he will one day come again and make all things right. And the book of Revelation says, on that day, when we see him face to face, he will take his hand and he will wipe away every tear from your eye. And he will say, there's no more pain. There's no more sorrow. There's no more polarization. There's no more death. There's no more disease. There's no more depression. There's no more inner turmoil. Behold, Jesus says, I make all things new. And it is because we have that hope in the future that we are called to be a people who live radically different in the present. Your neighbors should trip out on you because of the hope you have in the midst of difficult times. Not that you're burying your head in the sand, but you're like, hey, I have a different expectation of how things are going to end because Jesus Christ is coming again. That's one of the great themes in this book. The second coming of Jesus Christ, and it puts hope in your heart. And friends, we need it, don't we? Paul, the apostle, describes the way that this happens in your heart in the book of Romans when he says, and this hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. We need a hope that lasts. Because in this life, and maybe even this year, in this season, it's not all gonna go well. There are and there will be issues everywhere. But Paul says, when I think of you, Thessalonians, I think of your endurance that is inspired by the hope found in Jesus Christ. And that's what's kept you active in your trial. And I believe this is a prophetic word for our church. We need to emphasize, remember the hope that we have in Christ. Faith, love, hope. These are the signs of life. But where do they come from? And how do I know if someone like me can grow in faith, can grow in love, can grow in hope? Well, the answer is actually found in verse four. He says, for we know, brothers and sisters, and here's the key, you are people who are loved by God and chosen by God. Friends, that's the good news. All that you need to cultivate faith, love, and hope comes from knowing that you are loved by God and you are chosen by God in the gospel. Because we've all failed and we've all faltered. We haven't cultivated faith, love, and hope in the way that we ought. Maybe we did wave the white flag. Maybe we did burn out. Maybe we did give up. Well, if that's you, there's good news. In Christ, you are loved. In Christ, you are chosen. And he gives you a clean heart and a fresh start. 
He's chosen you because he loves you, regardless of what you've achieved or not achieved. And that means, friends, you can have a faith that does not fake it because you're loved by God. You can have a love that doesn't burn out because you are loved by God. You can have a hope that does not give up because you are loved by God. This is not found by looking in on ourselves, but by looking beyond ourselves. You can have these signs of life when you are connected to the source of life. And that is made possible in Jesus Christ. Whatever obstacle you're facing, whatever challenge or difficulty that you are in, name that right now and then declare the love of God. You say, this is hard, but I'm loved by God. I'm in a challenging season with my family or my marriage, but I'm loved and chosen by God. I'm in a difficult situation with my work, but I am loved and I'm chosen by God and therefore I can show faith, love, and hope. So church, when you feel like you're on the verge of faking it, burning out, or giving up, remember this. You have a God that is so committed to making you alive that he was willing to die and rise to make it happen. That he did for you. May that change us from the inside out even today. Let's pray now together. Fathers, we come to you. Thank you that we can be honest about the areas in which we have not cultivated faith, the work of faith, or the labor of love, or the endurance of hope. I thank you that we can be honest about that, knowing that Jesus Christ has died for us. Jesus Christ has risen for us. And so we can not only confess, we can also gladly receive your forgiveness. We can gladly And boldly come to you for the strength that we need, the power that we need to be the people you've called us to be. You're the God of life who makes us fully alive. And I pray that in any way in which we need to be reminded of that today, that we would. And I pray for anyone here who does not yet know you or they're at home watching online, I pray that if they have not yet done so, that they would put their faith and trust in Jesus for their salvation. That they would say right now, from their heart, Jesus, save me. Not because of what I've done, but because of what you've done. You died on the cross for my sins. You rose again on the third day to give me forgiveness and everlasting life. I believe and trust in you. Father, I pray those men and women would trust from their heart right now in this moment. And that, God, you would meet us as a church. Thank you that the way we get these signs of life is being connected to the source of life. And I pray that these these few moments now would be a time where your Holy Spirit reconnects us to you. So would you draw us near? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, this is a a time where we can be honest about those needs. We can be honest about those areas. There are men and women to my right and to my left. They've got the prayer lanyards. They're here to pray with you and for you. Maybe you came here today, you didn't plan on praying with someone, or maybe you've never prayed with someone here on a Sunday before. I encourage you to do so today. 
Where is it that you need to grow in faith? Where is it that you need to grow in love? Where is it that you need hope? It could be in your marriage, your family, your work, just your, your health. God wants to move. So come. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, for anyone. So I invite you this morning to be bold and to walk past the people in the rows and come forth and receive prayer and just say, I don't even know how to pray this morning. Can you pray for me? And I invite you to come to the carpets and to express a biblical posture of worship and say, God, you're the source. I'm not the source. And I'm coming to you. I'm connecting with you. Thank you that you've made a way in Jesus. You could celebrate communion today. If you're a Christian and you've trusted in Christ, come and eat the bread and drink the cup, remembering that Christ's body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you on the cross so that you can be connected with him. So come, let's worship, let's take communion, let's connect with him and just say, God, you need to cultivate these things in me. So let's be bold and honest in confessing our sins, but also rejoicing at the top of our lungs saying, I am loved and chosen by God. And that's why I can face this cultural moment. That's why I can face these difficulties in my family or my marriage or my friendships because I am loved and I am chosen by God. Invite the Spirit to move. Make Him room. Open yourself up to Him now. Let's sing. Let's respond. Let's worship in this moment. And watch what He will do.